Thank you. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, as we go through this great book of the Bible, 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. Tonight is a special baptism night, and uh, we'll make it a little more uh, intimate and um, just a little bit different. It's at 5 o'clock tonight. We'll go up on the stage here. If you have family and friends who join us, they'll be up kind of close here. If you've not signed up but would like to follow in believer's baptism, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior and would like to follow in believer's baptism, show up a little bit early, a little bit before five so that we can know, talk to you and know that you've given your life to Christ. And then um, we'll baptize you here tonight, five o'clock, just a little earlier if you've not signed up. Well, open your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to read there uh, looking, beginning with verse 9, and love for you to follow along if you're online or in person. If you'll follow along, let's read these verses together. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 9. The Bible says, Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in outward appearance rather than in the heart. For if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. God wants you to live to bring glory to Christ. God wants you to live to bring glory to Christ. And so let's talk this morning about living for something greater. And I'm going to encourage you to write down three principles about living the kind of life God wants for you, living for something greater. Uh, would you write these principles down? Principle number one have the right goal. If you want to live for something greater, you're going to need the right goal. And the Bible talks often to us about the goals of life. The Bible says in verse 9, we make it our aim. That is, it's talking about a goal, about, about a purpose in life. Um, some of you have heard me say when I was young, I had all my, I knew exactly my goals in life. When I, I wanted to save $1,000 by the time I got to 16, $1,000 was a lot of money in those days, and I wanted to save $1,000, and then I was going to try out for the Cardinals and make it, of course, and uh, things would work out. And um, I, the only thing that stood between that plan and anything else was uh, I didn't have, I couldn't hit a curveball or a fastball or a changeup. Outside of that, I was really in pretty good shape. I didn't have skill, talent, or ability, but you know those things can be overrated sometimes. And I didn't make it to $1,000 by the time I was 16, but I had some goals. And perhaps you have some goals. Maybe you have some aims in life, but I want to ask you to live for something greater. Let's, let's note what the Bible says here in verse 9. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, and can I note for you again how often 2 Corinthians has talked about the fragility of life, the brevity of life, how we're like clay jars and we crack easily, how life is short, how fragile life is. And so Paul said, if you were here in recent weeks, he talked about how he preferred to be with the Lord, but God has him here in the meantime 
for a reason. And he says here again, whether we are at home or away, whether we're in the body or with the Lord, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. That's his goal. He said, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. We're focused on something. We're shooting at something. I uh, used to shoot my bow. I may pick it up again, but I, last year, you know, I had an accident and cut some tendons, and it's kind of I've been a little bit more reluctant to shoot my bow and arrow uh, since then. But nonetheless, when I would shoot, I would shoot at a target. And I didn't just shoot the arrow and then make a target where it landed, but I would shoot at a target. I had to aim at something. And God is saying, I want you to aim. I want you to have the right goal. I want you to aim at something. And, and specifically, it says, aim to be pleasing to him. Aim to be pleasing to him. Let's note what it doesn't say. It doesn't say aim to be pleasing to yourself. The goal of your life is not your own pleasure. The goal of your existence is not just to be happy or, or find some sort of self-fulfillment. And would you just note that the more you try to find this elusive personal happiness, the less it's there. Because when you just live for yourself, when you just live for what's in it for me, I mean, that's, it's like trying to hold sand and it just slips from your fingers because God made you for something greater than yourself. It doesn't say, um, make it our aim to be pleasing to others. I've discovered it's kind of hard to please everyone. Have you noticed that? And there's a little part of me that wants to be a people pleaser, maybe you too. And I've discovered along the way you can't please everyone. I suspect every pastor in America has, has discovered in, these, in this last year plus that you cannot please everyone and that you can have whatever response you may have. There'll be a group of people who are very upset about it no matter what you do. And can I just tell you, if you're going to try to live to please others, you are never, you're going to have a difficult, hard, unhappy life because no matter who you are and no matter what you do, you're not going to be able to please everyone. You're not. It's a, it's a good thing to find this out. And so if you're living for people to say, hey, great job, they don't always say that. It says, instead, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. That's the goal Paul says I'm shooting for. That's what I want. He talks about the aim, and then he talks about the plan toward that aim. He says in verse 10, notice in the text, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the judgment seat of Christ it's a word, the word that's used here is the word bema, and the bema was a common term used in the Roman Empire, referred to the, in, in Corinth, in fact, it's been excavated, a bema seat, it's called the bema seat, and it's where the judge would, would stand to give, maybe to listen to witnesses. Paul stood before that bema seat there in Corinth in a, in a bit of a trial, and the Bible is saying all of us are going to stand before this judgment seat of Christ. Everyone. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that, verse 10 says, each may be repaid for what is done in the body, that is in this world, whether good or evil. So we're all going to stand before God. We're all going to give account of our lives. Now I'm going to talk in a little bit about how believers can be forgiven, not on the basis of our goodness. We would never measure up before the bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ apart from what Christ has done for us. And I'll remind you that we can be forgiven because of what Christ has done for us. But all of us have a responsibility before God. All of us. God always calls us to holiness. We need salvation because we don't 
fully attain that, and only Christ can give us that holiness that comes in knowing Him as Savior. But I want to remind you that God has a responsibility for you, and holiness will always matter to God. Those of you who know Christ as Savior, listen, grace is a wonderful gift that God gives to us, but it's never a replacement for holiness. God calls us to live a holy life, to follow Him, to do what He wants us to do, to live like He wants us to live. And so the Bible says we're all going to stand before Him. And so Paul says, because of that, I make it my aim to be pleasing to Christ, not to please myself, not to please other people, but to please the Lord. That's the goal that I have. I tell sometimes about uh, my first year in college. I was at a chapel for football players, and we were listening to one of the guys speak, and he talked about how we ought to play for an audience of one. And it really changed the way I thought about life in so many ways. He said, don't just play for the, um, you know, the joy of yourself. Don't just play for the applause of your teammates. Don't just play for the applause of your coaches. Don't just play for the applause of fans. But play for the glory of the Lord. And I listen, sometimes the fans cheer, but sometimes they boo. Have you noticed that? I mean, sometimes the coaches say, good job, and sometimes they chew you out. And sometimes your, te- your teammates may appreciate what you do and sometimes not so much. But if you live for the applause of the Lord himself, if you're living for the applause of anyone else, you're going to find frustration and disappointment. But if you live for the applause of heaven, if that's your goal, if you say, I'm not just going to live for what's in it for me, and God made me for something more than just how can I please other people, but I want to live for the glory of God. I want to make it my aim to be pleasing to him. That's the right goal. And that's what it means to be living for something greater. And some of you who have tried, you've tried living for yourself, and it's just brought frustration. You've tried living for the applause of others, and you never can fully attain that. But when you live for the glory of the Lord, that's deep inside. For those of you who know Christ as Savior, deep inside, that's what you're longing to do. Have the right goal. Now, there's a second principle I'd like you to write down. Would you write down, point others to the right person? As we think about living for something greater, one of the ways we do that is to point others to the right person. In verse 11, 12, and 13, note this for us. Verse 11 says, Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, that is, a righteous judge, a holy judge, we're going to stand before him. God is a righteous judge. That ought to sober us some. And we know the fear of the Lord, that God is holy and righteous. Therefore, the Bible says, we try to persuade people. That's something you might want to underline. We try to persuade people. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Paul says, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your consciences. We can't fool God. You know, you can fool other people. You can put on a smile. You can, you know, look happy. But God knows you, and what we are is plain to God. God knows everything there is to know about us. He knows the real you. The part no one else may see, God knows everything there is to know about you. And Paul is saying, I want to be plain. God knows me, but I want to be plain to your consciences as well. I'm not trying to pretend to be something I'm not. He says, we're not commending ourselves to you, but giving you an opportunity, verse 12 says, to be proud of us so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in outward appearance. Boy, that sounds like our generation. We take pride in outward appearance rather than in the heart. Paul's saying what matters is not what it... We look like on the outside, God cares about who we are, your heart, your spirit, your soul. That's what God cares about in you. He's not impressed by the resume. 
Uh, he's not in awe of your talents. He cares about you, not what you look like to others, not what others see. God cares about your heart. God's always looking inward at you, always getting to the issues of integrity and who you are. Verse 13 says, if we're out of our mind, it is for God. If it seems like we're just crazy in our commitment to the things of God, that's for God's glory. If, it's, if we're in our right mind, if you see the logic, the understanding of what we're trying to tell you, the truth that we're pointing out to you, it is for you. And notice what the Bible is saying here. We try to persuade people. We're pointing people to Christ. So let's note some things. First note that we ought to want people to be saved. We ought to want people to be saved. Paul didn't just sound like, you know, I mean, if someone trusts Christ to save you, that's fine. I mean, I'm not against it, but no, he said, we try to persuade people. We want people to come to know Christ as Savior. Now listen, the more you know about Christ, the more you know about what Christ has done for you, the more you know about what Christ has done for the world, the more you understand the nature of the sacrifice Christ made on your behalf, the more you're going to want to see people saved. I am shocked often at how many people who profess faith in Christ Jesus care very little, it seems, about whether anyone comes to know Christ as Savior. And they could care deeply about little small pieces of minutia in this world. Deeply care about that. But hardly at all about whether someone trusts Christ as Savior. The Bible says there's rejoicing in the presence of God when one person trusts Christ as Savior. And yet, for many Christians, you would think it's kind of boring. It's not any big deal. If it happens, fine, but no big deal. The Bible says, Paul said, we try to persuade people. Would you notice well that we can't make others trust Christ as Savior? We can't make other people be saved. But if we could, but if we could, Paul cares so deeply about people that he wishes, I think, he could make people be saved. Listen, I, I, can't, I can't talk you into being saved. I can't manipulate you into be, being saved. I can't trick you into being saved. I can't force you to be saved. I can't force you to do the right things, to trust Christ as Savior. I sort of wish I could. I wish I could, I wish I could force you to give your life to Christ. It seems to me so many people are just ignoring the great love of God and the great opportunity that Christ gives them through the cross. It's, it's painful to see, but we can't. But we want to. We want you to come to Christ. And so the Bible says clearly here, we try to persuade people. This is not a small thing. Notice we try to persuade people because we know God is a righteous judge. Verse 11 says, therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. Since we know God is righteous, God is righteous. Listen, I'm glad God is a loving God, of course. But I don't want to forget he's a righteous judge. And when I think about that, it's a sobering thought. And I know something of the fear of the Lord when I recognize that God is holy and I am not in my own merit. And God is a righteous judge and a holy judge. I'm reminded that I want to persuade people because I know that righteousness of God. I know that people will justly be separated from God for eternity apart from Christ. Some of you have heard of Jerry Clower, and years ago this 
this man, Jerry Cloward, is a storyteller, and he told a story of a lady, a woman who had 16 children. And one of them got away. You know, you have 16 children, sometimes one of them can get away. And she found him in a barrel of tar. And when she found him, she said, boy, it would be easier for me to have another one than to clean you up. That's true, isn't it? And God loves us so much that though we have this stain of sin, Christ has done the work of cleaning us up. You know, you'll never clean yourself up. You know that, right? You'll never clean yourself up. You can't do enough good things to erase your past or to reach perfection, but Christ has done the work necessary for you to be saved. Christ died for you. Christ paid the penalty for your sins. Christ paid the debt that was yours. And you're cleaned up, not because you have reformed, not because you've gone to church enough, not because you've done some good things, but because Christ did the work you couldn't do, and Christ paid the penalty for your sins. So that if you will receive Christ as Savior, you'll be forgiven, and you'll be cleansed, and the stain, the tar of sin removed from your life, and you'll be made right before God. And so we persuade people because we know the truth is, apart from Christ, we are lost. Apart from Christ, we are separated from him. Apart from the work of Christ, there isn't any hope. He is a righteous, holy judge, and I stand before him rightly condemned, except for the blood of Jesus shed on my behalf. Christ lived the life, the perfect life I couldn't live. Christ died the death I deserved, and Christ provided the miracle I needed. And I am thankful for that promise from the Lord. And note as well that we want to live in a way that points people to, to Christ. We want to live in a way that points people to Christ. And so our actions and our words both point people to Christ. We persuade people, certainly by what we say, and we never want to forget that God has us use our words to explain to people salvation, but our life is lived in a way that helps point people to Christ as well. We want people to see Christ in us, though we're imperfect models of the Christian life. We want people to see Christ in us. So here's what Paul's saying in these verses, if I could kind of summarize verse 11, 12, and 13. It's sort of like this. He's saying, all I want to do is urge others to follow Christ. That's all I want to do. All I want to do is urge others to follow Christ. I, 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 don't, I don't care about all the little details of life, all the arguments that we have, or to get into some fight about this issue or that issue. I, I just want to urge others to follow Christ. I want to persuade people because I know the fear of the Lord. I want to point people to Christ. I want to be pleasing to Him. I want to live for something greater. Sometimes it's hard to get a guy to talk. Not all guys are big talkers, and some guys, you know, they just, how are you? Fine. You know, that's just one word's enough to describe it all. Anything new going on? No. That's a, that's a lot of guys like that. You know, it's just a word or two. But maybe if you talk to them about the right subject, you can, you know, they begin to talk. You ask them maybe about their college football team. And they go on and on about how much they love their team or how well their team's doing or how, well how poorly their team's doing and how they wish the coach would get fired and great detail about the failures and foibles of their team. And they might talk 
ad nauseum about their college football team. Or maybe it's politics. And you say something about politics, and there's going to be a long rant that's going to follow that, and they're going to talk at great length about politics, and they're going to tell everything about the subject that you wanted to hear, and a whole lot of things that you didn't want to hear. And they're just going to talk and talk and talk about politics. I don't know about you, but sometimes, I mean, I, I appreciate the politics. I appreciate that we can participate in the political process. But I just tell you, sometimes I get tired of talking about it. I just, I mean, it's just more than I can, I can't always just, I can't just watch the news constantly. And, but man, some guys are just talk and talk about politics. Or maybe it's their family. And heaven forbid that they have grandchildren because they will talk about their grandchildren and you will get so tired of hearing about their grandchildren, present company included. You just get so tired of it. But Paul's saying, you know, what I want to talk about, the more I, the more I've lived, the longer I've gone with Christ. I just want to point people to Christ. I just want to say to people, follow Jesus. I, want, I just want people to know they can be redeemed. I just want people to, to know that there's a God who loves them. All I really want to do is persuade people to follow the Lord. And while there are lots of other things that may amount to something, there's this one thing that is so much greater and that matters so much more. And so since I know the fear of the Lord... I'm just trying to persuade people to follow the Redeemer. So if you want to live for something greater, you're going to have to have the right goal, and you're going to have to point people to the right person. But there's a third principle I'd like you to know. Would you write this down? Live for the right reason. Live for the right reason. God's got something greater for you. Let's go to, to the text in verse 14. The Bible says, for the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. Would you just note here that we are to live for love? The love of Christ, Paul said, compels us. It compels us to talk about the gospel. It compels us to point to people, point out to people that they need the Redeemer. It's what motivates us. Now, there is a power to the motivation of love that is greater, I believe, than the motivation of guilt. Guilt is not entirely bad. When we're guilty, God reminds us we're guilty. There's some value to guilt. When I do wrong... God points out that it's wrong, and I'm thankful that he does that. He does that so that I make things right, so that I turn back to him. But motivation just by guilt is sort of short-term. So if I, I think maybe I could motivate you some by guilt. I could make you feel guilty that you're not serving, and so maybe you would serve uh, out of guilt, or maybe I could motivate you by guilt to give. You've not been giving, and so I motivate you by guilt to give, or maybe I could motivate you by guilt for ministry. You just haven't been doing ministry, and I could just make you feel guilty about that. And I probably could motivate you for a while, for a while. But I've noticed that doesn't always last. But when the love of Christ compels us, when we serve because we love, and that lasts for a lifetime, when we give because we love, that lasts for a lifetime. When we minister because we love, that lasts for a lifetime. So when we see that the love of Christ is what compels us, God loves us. That's why we love others. God serves us. That's why we serve others. God has given to us. That's why we give to others. The Lord has ministered to us. That's why we minister to others. When the love of Christ compels us, there's a power to that. And I want you to experience the love of the Lord, that he loves you so much 
And Paul's just saying, man, that's, that's what compels me. It's just what drives me. It's the right reason for me to live the life God wants me to, to live. It's the something greater that I'm living for. We live for love, and then also we live for truth. Verse 14 says, the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all, and therefore all died. Now, this is the, the truth that Christ died in your place. Christ died for you. And I want you to note that love and truth go together. It's not that we say, you know, we, we love people, so we're not going to tell them the whole truth. That's not genuine love. It's not just that we tell them the truth and we just don't care about them. It is that we love them and the love of Christ compels us and we tell them the truth. That Christ died for sins, that sins, sin has consequences. And that Christ died for sin. And that one died for all. Christ died in your place on that cross. Christ died for your sins. Christ died for your debt. And so we live for that truth that Christ died in our place and we died to self and lived to Christ. I followed the 20-year anniversary of the 9-11 things and I know that any of the high school students and younger were not even born, of course, when 9-11 took place. And so it's just uh, something you've learned about but not something you remember. In fact, uh, for many of you here, it's not something you remember directly. But for those of us who are, who are old enough, it affected us deeply. It affected us deeply. We remember where we were when we saw this. We found ourselves glued to the events that were taking place. We said, we'll never forget. And, and yet, I think we sort of have and in many ways forgotten the lessons that we vowed to remember. But I saw a lot of images just, they're just moving for us. If you're old enough to have lived through that time, you know the moving nature of this, the powerful emotions that are involved with that time. And I, I saw a picture that stirred my heart in an unusual way. It was just a still picture, not a video, just a picture. And it was a picture in the background, you could see the Twin Towers on fire. And in the foreground, a little closer, but in small, just was a fire truck, maybe a hook and ladder. I'm not sure if that's the terminology that's correct, but the, the large fire truck on its way to the towers. And um, the, the note about the picture said that every, all of the firefighters who were on this particular fire truck, all of them were they're headed toward the towers, and every one of them would perish there. Every one of them would die there. And I thought about all the first responders and the military folks who, who go towards danger and who face problems on our behalf, and, and people who are willing to risk dying in our place. And can I just tell you, that's a, I don't want to in any way undermine the heroism and the, and the work of those who responded in those days, but it's a small picture of what Christ did in a greater way. And Christ went to the cross to take my sins upon himself. He went to the cross. He went to the hard place for you. And he did the hard thing 
for you. And he went there knowing he was dying for the penalty that was rightly yours. Christ died for you. And when we see this, when we recognize this, we can live for, the, for something greater, something bigger. We live for love and we live for truth and then we live for Christ. Verse 15 says it like this, and he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Boy, that's too small to live for yourself. But for the one who died for them and was raised. Can I just remind you, if you're living for yourself, you're missing the point the purpose of the Christian life. If you're living for yourself, you're missing the very purpose of the Christian life. God wants you to live for the right reason. God wants you to live for something greater. And so we, don't, we no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who died for us and was raised for us. We make it our aim to be pleasing to him, knowing one day soon we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We know that the fear of the Lord, and so we try to persuade people because we want to live for something bigger, something greater, something lasting. Christian, would you, would you say, God, I want to live for something greater. I don't want to just live for the small things, the trivia of this world. I want to live for something greater. There are some of you here who need to be saved. You need to give your life to Christ. Christ died for you. He paid the debt that was yours. And I want I want you to be compelled by the love of Christ on your behalf and give your life to Christ today. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? And as we bow, there are some of you here, you're listening online or you're hearing this at some other time or you're here in person right now and you need to be saved. You need to be born again. And Jesus died for you. And he's convicting you of your need for, for him. He's convicting you of sin and righteousness so that you would give your life to Christ. I'm going to ask you today to repent of your sins. Place your faith, your trust in Jesus who died for you and rose from the grave for you. And trust him as Savior and he'll save you today. Christian, would you say, I don't want to live for the small things of this world. I want to live for something greater. You made me, you saved me, God, for something bigger than just myself. And so I want to live pleasing. I don't want to just live for the applause of others. I don't want to just live for the momentary pleasures of this world. I want to live for something greater. I want to live a life pleasing to him. I want to persuade people knowing the fear of the Lord. I want the love of Christ to compel me to point to others this great Savior. Father, I want to thank you for your word, the power of it, the truth it teaches us. And I want to thank you. You love us. And you made us for something bigger and something greater. And very often we find ourselves focused on small things, on lesser things, living our lives for the wrong reasons. And yet you've made it clear to us that you want us to aim for something greater, to live for something more. So Lord, we pray you will help us to aim to please you and not just to live for our own lives and for our own pleasure or to live for the applause of others that so often fails to satisfy. Lord, help us to do all we can to point people to the Savior and to persuade people to follow you because we've discovered a Savior who loves us. Let love compel us let love drive us so that we're living for something greater. And we pray this in the, in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.